We cry, holy, holy, holy. Let's open up to John chapter 18. It's great to see everyone here. Um, thank you for coming. If this is your first time, welcome. We're glad to have you. You're jumping into a series today that I want to continue from last week. And uh, this series I'm calling Following the Prince of Peace in a Culture of Violence. In this series, what we're doing is we're taking a closer look at the nonviolent and peaceable kingdom of Jesus. We actually spent all of last year studying through the kingdom of God and what this kingdom is in relation to the other kingdoms of the world. And now we're taking a closer look at Jesus' nonviolent teachings, his life. And in particular today, we're actually going to go backwards into church history. If this is your first time, welcome again, and we, we, we hope and we pray that you would find um, community, that you would find uh, a church family that is uh, not perfect, but that is trying to be authentic, genuine, sincere, and devoted in our love for God because God loved us first. And so... To recap, last week, we started the series by looking at this concept of there being a war, a conflict between two kingdoms. These two kingdoms are the kingdom of Jesus and every other kingdom. And in particular, we looked at John chapter 18 to highlight this conflict and this war between two kingdoms. And we looked at Jesus, as he stood before Pilate on trial, just before his crucifixion, and we look through this exchange and this dialogue and this interaction between Jesus and this representative of the kingdoms of the world in the governor Pilate, a Roman governor, a man of authority and power. And in verse 36, Jesus, as he's being questioned about whether or not he's really a king, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants, my disciples, my followers would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. And so in this interaction between Pilate and Jesus, Jesus tells Pilate that the primary difference between his father's kingdom and Pilate's kingdom, which is representative of every kingdom of the world, every nation of man, the entire worldview and ethos of humankind, is that Jesus' kingdom does not employ violence or force or coercion to exercise its will, but rather invites a choice. And Jesus is contrasting this to Pilate's kingdom, which is in this very moment exercising force and coercion and ultimately violence to exercise its will, which is domination. So as we continue in this series, starting in this war of two kingdoms, today we're going to talk about a blending of those two different kingdoms. 
And there's a term that I think represents this blending called Christian nationalism. How many of you have ever heard that term, Christian nationalism? Okay. After this lesson in Christian nationalism, the next two Sundays, we're actually going to break up into our microchurches, so we won't be meeting here. And you're going to be invited in that microchurch to have a dialogue and a discussion about these subjects for the next two Sundays. Then we'll come back here for the two Sundays following that and close our series with a final microchurch discussion. The idea is that as we're learning and as I'm teaching, we're also having time to really process and dialogue and learn together and teach each other as we wrestle with the Word of God and the kingdom of Jesus. So Christian nationalism, what is it? Where does it come from, and what does it have to do with us following the Prince of Peace today in our context? Because guess what? We do have a context. We are standing in Western North Carolina, the United States, in the 21st century. Just like Pilate was standing in the Mediterranean in the first century under a Roman empire. We all have contexts. And we're trying to figure out and wrestle with how do we understand, appropriate, believe, and follow this man Jesus in our context. And in order to do that, I believe we've got to take a closer look at history. And in particular, church history. So I'm going to be drawing from the text very little today. Instead, I want to help us understand history to provide context for the text today. And as we jump in, I want to remind us of a quote from last week, in case this is your first time. This is from The Global Politics of Jesus by Saia. Christians striving to follow the way of Christ, which I would presume would be most of us today, should be willing to question and, if necessary, adjust our deeply held convictions and to ask probing questions of others in a spirit of amity and sincere inquisitiveness, meaning be kind. That we should have a kind, spirited inquisitiveness as opposed to unkind dogma. I think that this idea is very important for us as we embark upon this journey of Jesus' nonviolent kingdom, for some of us perhaps more than others. But again, as we continue, I do want to clarify some things personally so that you know where I'm coming from, right? Because four sermons is like barely skimming the surface. And it's very difficult to feel like you can do something justice when you're just skimming the surface, that you can really kind of massage and and I don't I wrestle with that I don't know how I feel about it but this is what we're going to work with for today but I think it's important for you to know where I'm coming from what my motives are right as you seek to inquire and ask probing questions in the spirit of amity of me I had a conversation this past week after last week's sermon and someone asked me if I was preaching this in order to have some sort of political outcome or influence. For example, that maybe I can influence people to vote a certain way or to disarm and get rid of your weaponry and guns because in a 
room this size, there's probably a few guns that we own, I would imagine. Because you know that America has the largest gun ownership per capita out of any nation in the world. There are more guns in America than there are people. Did you know that? And I had to tell them that no, this is not politically motivated. This is not motivated by me trying to achieve some outcome per se. Rather, this is motivated as I have personally wrestled with and struggled with the teachings and life of Jesus and had to look at my own life and my own decisions and my own leanings and understandings. I have had to question and adjust my own deeply held convictions. And so I want to offer us that same opportunity to wrestle. And you may wrestle and you may not end up in the same place that I do or the person sitting next to you does. A particular outcome is not necessarily my goal. My goal is to invite us on the journey of wrestling. And if you've been coming for a while, you've heard me actually preach about politics. And I think today we're going to get at the root of why that's important and why is that a thing. I am apolitical and personally choose not to vote. For some, that very statement is offensive. You may have never heard a preacher say that. Now you have. And I want to say that I am grateful for the many advantages that I have living in this country, the opportunity that I have to share what I'm sharing right now freely without any real sense of threat or persecution. But as we discussed last week, I am convinced that Jesus' kingdom is completely separate from the kingdom of the world. That includes America and every other nation on earth. I believe that there is no such thing as a Christian nation. There has never been since the resurrection of Jesus, and nor will there ever be until his return. And for some, again, this kind of idea can be quite jarring, abrasive, offensive. And I want you to know my motive and my heart is not to offend, but rather to wrestle and to present what I see in the scriptures. You may be tempted to dismiss me out of hand by saying something like, there is no such thing as a Christian nation. And perhaps the spirit of this quote is no more needed in this series than today. And there's a reason for that, because we have a context. Because many of us have been taught, dare I say indoctrinated, that this is a Christian nation. We're going to unpack some of that as we go. But I believe that in order for us to better understand and obey and follow the Prince of Peace in our cultural context and our culture of violence, we have to understand how did we get here? Where did this come from? And as I've been having conversations with people over the past two years, specifically on this subject matter, I've been hearing a few things kind of over and over consistently, right? And one of them is that after someone really sees the teachings of Jesus and his life and the life of the early Christians clearly to be nonviolent, 
that they would not shed other people's blood in any circumstance. After they see this, they go, so how did we get to where we are today? Why have I never heard this before? And there is a reason. There is a story. In fact, I talked to a minister at one point of over 30 plus years in the ministry. And he told me after reviewing some work that I had done, he said, I've never heard of this. It shocked me and at the same time broke my heart. So today, as we explore Christian nationalism, I want to look at three specific things. One, the Constantinian shift. Two, Christian nationalism in our context today. And three, the undergirding myth that is underneath all of it, something that Walter Wink calls the myth of redemptive violence. So let's jump in. Nationalism. What is nationalism? It's defined as identification with one's own nation and support for its interests, especially to the exclusion or detriment of the interests of other nations. It's preference, right? Preferential treatment. Nationalism is about my nation being more deserving or better or needing above another nation. It is that idea that makes a nation, right? A nation is defined by something that has boundaries, whether geographically, politically, ideologically. It's some sort of boundary that says we are we and you are you. There's no such thing as a nation without that, right? So Christian nationalism is that in the name of Christ. Christian nationalism in our context is often seen in phrases like, for king and country, America is a Christian nation, America is God's chosen nation, and so on and so forth. And as I said, I'm not political, so don't read this example as me endorsing or throwing shade on any particular political candidate, but I simply use this example because this notion is so common in our context. A quick Google search on this subject produced a quote from a Missouri senator just a couple of weeks ago. And he's quoted as saying, it cannot be emphasized too strongly or too often that this great nation was founded not by religionists, but by Christians, not, by re- not on religions, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And... He's quoted as saying, we are a revolutionary nation precisely because we are the heirs of the revolution of the Bible. And without the Bible, there is no modernity. And without the Bible, there is no America. Do you understand what these quotes are saying? That America is Christian. That America is founded on the gospel of Jesus Christ. That without the Bible, there is no America, a blending of two kingdoms. This is what Christian nationalism looks like in our context. So how did we get here? We got to go back. And this is becoming more and more difficult for us because we are in a context that is difficult to go back. How many of you 
know the names of all eight of your great-grandparents. Raise your hand. If you know the names of all eight of your great-grandparents, how many of you know all the names of your grandparents? Okay. So for the sake of viewers online and later, no one raised their hand that would have knowledge of a name of a person that lived only two generations ago. Number one, this is a great thought exercise to get us to connect perhaps even more with the biblical sentiment that our lives are just a mist. And as Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, no one will remember you when you are gone. And number two, that we get very easily disconnected from history. I'm talking about your personal family history, my personal family history. We get disconnected like that. It is the nature of our very time-bound lives that are very short. This can be a disadvantage in many ways. And so for us to understand how to follow the Prince of Peace, we've got to go back and fight to try to understand history. The theologian John Howard Yoder popularized the term Constantinian shift to describe a time period in church history in the fourth century that was marked by an incredible shift away from the New Testament and the earliest church of the prior 300 years. And this, of course, had to do with the conversion of Constantine the Great to Christianity. Scholars are debated about the authenticity of that conversion. Regardless, that's neither here nor, nor there for the purposes of this conversation. What's important is that for the first 350 years, roughly, in the early church, we have almost completely unanimous writings from church leaders on the topics of nonviolence and enemy love. The early church did not allow any Christian to enlist into the military and take up arms. And if a soldier of the Roman legion was converted to Christ, he was required to make every effort to remove himself from his position that would require him to potentially take another human life, even if it cost him his own life. In fact, we see in the early church, the first three centuries, that nonviolence and peace was at the center of what distinguished followers of Jesus from the rest of the kingdoms of the world and Jews. At the earliest points, Christian Jesus followers were viewed as a sect of Judaism. They were believed at first by the pagans, by the Gentiles, by the Romans, to just be like an offshoot of the Jews. Over time, the Christians became known, even differentiated from the Jews, primarily on this subject of peace and nonviolence. It wasn't necessarily their philanthropic work. It wasn't evangelism, and it wasn't charity. It was love that distinguished Christians. It was the love of neighbors, and it was the love of enemies. And it was their willingness to die rather than shed anyone else's blood for any reason. 
listen to some of these early church leader writings. From the second century, a man named Justin Martyr. He says, We ourselves were well conversant with war, murder, and everything evil, but all of us throughout the whole wide earth have traded in our weapons of war. We, referring to Christians, have exchanged our swords for plowshares, our spears for farm tools. Now we cultivate the fear of God, justice, kindness, faith, and the expectation of the future given us through the crucified one. The more we are persecuted and murdered, the more do others and ever-increasing numbers become believers. He said the more that we are murdered, the more people become disciples of the crucified one. That's not the Christianity I grew up on, y'all. The apostolic traditions moving forward one more century in the third century. Listen to this. The professions and trades of those who are going to be accepted into the community of believers must be examined. The nature and type of each must be established. Anyone taking part in baptismal instruction or already baptized who wants to become a soldier shall be sent away for he has despised God. A soldier in the sovereign's army should not kill, or if he is ordered to kill, he should refuse. If he stops, so be it. Otherwise, he should be excluded. Referring to the Lord's table from communion. In the first few centuries, the Christians were emphatic about the role of violence for the follower of the crucified one. And that that issue actually became an issue of who was welcomed at the Lord's table. Who could actually partake in the death and resurrection and the remembrance of the Lord? I don't know about y'all, but this was not the gospel I grew up on. Let me clarify what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that there are not well-intended motives in every standing army of the world. But what I am saying is that there is a difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of the world. The kingdoms of the world must, by necessity, use force, violence, and ultimately the threat of death to enforce its will, to be it. Jesus fundamentally does something different and says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing and dies in our stead to create that kingdom and says, come, follow me. Then it becomes real, right? It's not just about getting my sins forgiven and getting a get out of hell free card so I can go to heaven. No, it becomes about me being invited to die at the hands of my enemies. I don't know about that, y'all. I got to wrestle So I want to provide a little timeline because I know for some of us, this can all sound overwhelming and a bit disorienting and frankly confusing. So we have the time of the earliest church in the first three centuries where the Christians were almost unanimous 
for centuries on these teachings. And then in the fourth century, you have Constantine the Great, a Roman emperor who had expanded the Roman Empire to its largest size at that time in history. He converts to Jesus under what most everybody would say are dubious circumstances, if you aren't familiar. He apparently has a vision of Jesus before he goes into a battle to conquer another area to add to his empire, and Jesus waves a flag with a Christian emblem on it and tells Constantine, in this banner, conquer. And then he comes from his vision and dream and wins the battle. And so he concludes that he is now fighting for Jesus. This is what Yoder refers to as the Constantinian shift. That's in around 313 A.D. By 319, six years later, okay, so then Constantine legalizes Christianity, which was illegal up to that point. He legalizes Christianity and shortly thereafter actually mandates that Christian be the only state religion. And by 319, we have a church leader named Athenaeus who says, it is not right to kill Yet in war, it is lawful and praiseworthy to destroy the enemy. Accordingly, not only are they who have distinguished themselves in the field held worthy of great honors, but monuments are putting up proclaiming their achievements. 319. How different does that sound to you? from 27 to roughly 30 AD, where Jesus says, I tell you to pray for those who persecute you, to love your enemies, to turn the other cheek to that who is aggressing you. 300 years later, it is lawful and praiseworthy to destroy the enemy in battle. That's a Christian talking. Well, how did that happen? Because now you have Constantine saying that the empire of Rome is Christian. And so to expand the empire, to continue empire in the name of Jesus, we must have a way to understand and rationalize war. Because empire does not grow without violence. I can't get you to do what I want ultimately without violence, right? And so the empire cannot exist without some sort of understanding of how war is justified. Augustine comes into the picture, and he writes his very famous, The City of God. You guys have heard of St. Augustine, St. Augustine? This is around 400 AD. Augustine, who's actually building on the ideas of Aristotle, a Greek philosopher 600 years prior, 700 years prior, In his work, The City of God, Augustine begins to sketch a philosophy that eventually becomes known as just war theory. This is later systematized by Thomas Aquinas around the year 1200. And this is a position that claims that some wars are just and therefore justified before God and right for Christians to participate in. I'm not going to dive too much into just war theory today, but I want us to just understand a a broad brushstroke overview of the history of Christian nationalism 
I believe that the Constantinian shift is the origins of Christian nationalism. This is when church and state, this is when the kingdom of Jesus and the kingdoms of the world try to blend and it becomes something else entirely. Augustine, interestingly, he thought that as individuals, as individual Christians, Christians should not practice violence and they should not engage in self-defense. However, a nation can hardly exist without an army and a willingness to defeat enemies that threaten that nation. So Augustine is the first Christian philosopher, theologian, and writer that begins to bifurcate, to distinguish and separate following Jesus as an individual in your private life and following Jesus publicly as a community and as a nation. That's an important seed to pay attention to. Following Jesus now is beginning in the fourth century to become separated into private following Jesus and something different in the public sphere. This is where Christianity and the empire merge. A hundred years later after this, in 416, there's actually an edict made that bans anyone from the Roman army that is not a Christian. If you are not a Christian by 416, you cannot serve in the Roman army. 400 years earlier, Jesus is saying, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. 400 years later, if you aren't a Christian, you can't even serve in the army. What a shift. And I believe it's at this time and during this shift that lays the philosophical and theological groundwork for something that would come later, like the Crusades. In the early 1000s, the Crusades of Christian Europeans to reclaim the Holy Land from the Muslims, and even Crusades against other Christians who were against the Pope or who believed unorthodox or heretical teachings. The church from this shift on has killed other Christians who didn't believe the right things. But I tell you to love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Later empires of the world also adopt these same theological and philosophical groundworks and frameworks. Empires such as the British that would later go to conquer other nations like India, Australia, and Africa, and the indigenous and native peoples there, all in the name of Jesus. We have a context too. And in our context, I believe this is the primary ideology that undergirds our own nation and its origins. When we look at things like the concepts of manifest destiny, one nation under God, and American exceptionalism. You'll notice here, around the 1500s, is the Reformation. Any of you ever heard of the Reformation? Who was one of the primary leaders and faces of the Reformation? Martin Luther. How many of you have ever heard of the Radical Reformation, as opposed to Luther and the Protestant or Protesting Reformation? 
The Radical Reformation is shortly after the time of Luther and much less known. Protestant Reformation was about reforming the Catholic Church, primarily through Catholics like Luther and many others, though he's the primarily known one in the face of it. Not long after, there were other Christians who began to see that there's something more radical needed than reform of the Catholic Church, which by this point for centuries had been slaughtering entire nations in the name of Jesus. And it is this radical reformation that spawns groups like the Anabaptists, the Mennonites, and other groups starting around in the 1800s or even earlier, I'm sorry, in the 1500s, in places like Germany and Austria, etc. And this is an example of what the radical reformers did and believed and how they were received. This is a sketch, a drawing, of a man named Dirk Willems from the year 1569. He was Dutch. He was a radical reformer. He was an Anabaptist. And he's most, famous, he's most famous for escaping from prison because of his beliefs, but then turning back to rescue his captor who was pursuing him and falls through thin ice. He turns back to rescue this man's life only to then be recaptured, tortured, and killed for his beliefs in Jesus. And it was this nonviolence and love of even your persecutors that came to distinguish the Radical Reformation from the Protestant Reformation. And Luther, interestingly, became one of the most ardent opposers of these kinds of Christians, even to the point of killing them. Violence and the use of force or not is central for how Jesus' kingdom is separated and distinguished from all of the kingdoms of the world. The myth of Christian America. I know that language may be exasperating. It's not meant for shock value. It's meant to be clear and hopefully truthful. For a very, very long time now, there has been a persisting myth that America is a Christian nation. To be clear, we are not the only nation that embraces this myth. It goes all the way back to the Constantinian shift. But we have a context. And this myth persists through politicians, through the media, through our family, through a narrative that traces itself all the way back to the fourth century. And we can trace how this Christian nationalism continues to grow and spread and, in, and perhaps is at its greatest degree and resurging like never before right now in our context. And this Christian nationalism is defined as nationalism and Christ being blended together. The church and the state becoming the same thing. The blending of politics and Christianity. The blending of the kingdom of Jesus and the kingdoms of this world. Take, for instance, what we call our pledge of allegiance. I would assume you all know it very well. It is a part of what it means to be indoctrinated to this nation. 
It is a part of our ideology as a nation, and it goes something like this in its current version. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. I can say it with cadence as I was taught it at a very, very young age. And to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. Some of you may not know that, interestingly, that phrase, one nation under God, was added to the pledge in 1954. And the pledge originated, I believe, in the 1700s in an earlier version and form. And in 1954, one nation under God was added to that pledge primarily as a political maneuver to appeal to Christian voters, Christian nationalism, that we would use the name of Christ as a maneuver to gain power. Another example is what I would call the derivatively Christian religion of Mormonism, which reports God as saying of America, it is not right that any man should be in bondage one to another. And for this purpose, I have established the constitution of this land by the hands of wise men whom I raised up unto this very purpose and redeemed the land by the shedding of blood. So the Mormon faith, which is, again, I believe, derivative of Christianity, says that God actually redeemed America by the shedding of blood that God actually raised up wise men to instill the Constitution of America. I believe this to be an example, another way for us to see Christian nationalism at work. And when the church acts in accordance with its calling to be the Holy Bride of Christ, set apart, ecclesia, drawn out a separate kingdom, then the church understands itself to exist in a condition of permanent tension with the state, which pursues its goals through methods at odds with the kingdom of the cross. And the state is any state and any nation, not just ours, though ours included. My conviction and what I want to put before you is that the church and the state cannot be the same thing. We cannot have fidelity to the teachings of Jesus and yet think that we are a Christian nation and implore violence to accomplish the will of God on the earth. That is not the way of the cross. So either Jesus was wrong or we're wrong, but we can't both be right at the same time. I use this picture as another example to illustrate what Christian nationalism look like, looks like for us. This is actually a painting from 1872 that represents the concept of manifest destiny. John Gast, who is the artist, paints this allegorical representation of the modernization of the New West. Columbia in the center is a, a personification of the United States. And she's shown leading civilization westward with the American settlers. She is shown bringing light from east to west 
stringing telegraph wire and holding a school book, highlighting different stages of economic activity and evolving forms of transportation, such as the train and the wagon. And on the left, indigenous Americans are displaced from their homeland and slaughtered. This concept is undergirded by the idea that God is with us, that this is God's will, that God desires for us to fill in the blank, vanquish evil, educate and enlighten primitive people, bring technology and opportunity and wealth and whatever the version is. And it's not of Jesus. Jesus said truly that if you would come after me, you must deny yourself and take up your own cross, not go and conquer other people. What a shift has occurred. So this leads us to another myth, and that is the myth of redemptive violence. Walter Wink, who's a theologian, says that redemptive violence enshrines the belief that violence saves that war brings peace, that might makes right. Wink contends and says that it is one of the oldest continually repeated stories in the world. That the myth of redemptive violence is actually the greatest myth of the modern world and it is the dominant religion of our society today. And he traces this myth actually back to some of the world's oldest written narratives, the Enuma Elish, which is a Babylonian origin story. It's a creation narrative of the Babylonians that predates Genesis. And if you read it, you will see much overlap. And you can tell that the writers of Genesis and the writers of the Babylonian Elish, they're in dialogue together. It's, a, it's an important and, I think, helpful study. Maybe we'll do something on that later. But this Babylonian creation myth found in the second millennia B.C. is constantly repeated in our culture and media. And the Elish creation story, essentially, in a nutshell, is that the gods are at war with one another, and as one god slays another god, it is from the remains of that violence that the universe and the cosmos is created. The origin story of humanity and all that we see is birthed from violence. And there are many civilizations, creation narratives that follow that same pattern. The myth of redemptive violence, Wink traces back thousands and thousands of years to the very beginning of us recording history. And he says that it's actually still repeated in our context today as well. Examples include things like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Star Wars, X-Men, Transformers, Spider-Man, all Marvel comics, Tom and Jerry, Power Rangers, Dragon Ball Z, Naruto, James Bond, Mission Impossible, Dirty Harry, John Wayne, and the list goes on and on and on. The basic attitude is summed up in an episode of that ultimate spoof on the spy thriller, Get Smart. 
As I recall the scene decades after viewing it, the show ends with the villain being blown off of a cliff to his death on the rocks below, tricked by a loaded cigarette. Agent 99 watches in horror, then comments, You know, Max, sometimes I think we're no better than they are, the way we murder and kill and destroy people. To which Smart retorts, Why, 99, you know we have to murder and kill and destroy in order to preserve everything that's good in the world. The myth of redemptive violence. It stands at odds with Jesus' kingdom. Jesus' kingdom of peace and love, even love of enemies at the sake of death, is not like the kingdoms of this world that employ violence in order to escape death. Instead, Jesus inaugurates a kingdom and invites us into it in which death itself is overcome through his own self-sacrificial life. 1 Peter chapter 3, we'll close here. In verse 9, Peter that very same apostle that drew his sword and sliced off his enemy's ear only to be rebuked by his master. Put your sword back, Peter. Some many years later would write this. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, see those separations of two kingdoms? Repay evil with blessing. Because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord, as emperor, as president. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for us, the unrighteous, to bring us to God. As we embark upon this journey, as we wrestle together, I want us to consider the ways in which we may blend the two kingdoms, whether purposefully or unintendedly to examine if we understand this Prince of Peace as he truly is. Someone who invites us to suffer, not to vanquish. 
Someone who invites us to love, not to conquer. And someone who invites us to follow because death is not to be feared. We're going to talk more about that the next time we meet all together in three weeks. The sermon is titled, Do Not Be Afraid, in which we will explore what distinguishes the two kingdoms and what makes them want to merge. It is our fear of death. If in our faith in Jesus, we overcome our fear of death, those two kingdoms get ripped apart. And we can put our faith and hope in the one who allows us to live free from death. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you stood there before Pilate who was shocked that you were not afraid of death, that you were not afraid of the power that he had to kill you because you saw more. That you believed and obeyed your father. Help us to follow. Help us not to cling to this life, but to be willing to freely give it away economically, politically, materially, in all ways. Help us to be willing, Lord, to lay down our lives for others because you lay down your life for us. We stumble and fall short in many ways. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your patience. May you embolden us with courage as we venture on. In Jesus' name. Amen.